So we are in the book of Judges. Uh, last time we were together, we did an intro to the book of Judges. We're calling this series Kingless Kingdom because of the very repeated phrase in the book, which is, in those days, there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is a book about people going their own way, people doing things the way that they want to instead of listening to and following their God. Um, today we're in Judges chapter 1. And Judges chapter 1 is very strange. Uh, It's kind of a mixed bag in the sense that it is all over the place. Um, Most of the chapters of Judges have to do with like one character, like Samson or Gideon. This first chapter is just, it's crazy. It's just like first there's battles going on and then there's a random story about a dad and his daughter and then some guy gets his fingers cut off and it's just, it's, it's all over the place. And so I was studying it and I was like, how do I teach this? And the Lord was like, don't try to come up with one point, just go through it and just point out the different things that we see. So we're just going to go through it verse by verse and we're going to point out the different things that God shows us and hopefully you'll be able to learn and, and receive from the Lord. I think he has different things he wants to say to everybody here today. Um, I've called this lesson just Judges 1, Lessons from the Dark, because it is a very dark beginning to the book of Judges. And so we're just going to jump right into it. So verse 1, I've got, when we did the Gospel of John, we did um, those Bible videos where it was Jesus. And I unfortunately don't have any Judges videos of Desmond playing Jesus. But I do have an audio Bible that I've attached to this presentation, um, and it helps me because the book of Judges, it's different than, you know, in the New Testament, you've got all these stories about Jesus, and there's really easy to remember characters. In this book, it's all these different tribes and kings with weird names, and it's really easy to get lost. So I'm using this audio Bible because at least it has different voices for different people, and that can help us kind of stay on track with who's who. So we'll try it out, and we'll see if we like it. Here is uh, chapter one, starting in verse one. The Book of Judges Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they killed ten thousand men at Bezek. All right, so this is how our story begins. And if you're lost, you're like, what is going on? We were just in the Gospel of John, and I missed the intro, so I have no idea where we are in the story. The place we are is we are in the story of the Bible after Genesis and Exodus, after um, Moses and the children of Israel, Abraham's descendants are in Egypt and they finally get out and they get away from Pharaoh. God says to the people of Israel, I'm leading you to the promised land. I'm leading you to the place that I've prepared for you, the place where you can set up shop and become your own country called Israel. Israel. Um, So it's been years that they've been wandering in the desert because of their foolish decisions. They're always making mistakes. They actually would have made it to the promised land really quick if they would have listened to the Lord. But instead, they've been wandering. Moses has died. Joshua has died. And now there's this new generation of Israelites rising up. 
So here's the first thing you want to notice. The first thing you want to notice is who are the two main characters in this, six, this section? It's Judah and Simeon. Is that strange to anybody? Raise your hand if that's strange. Why is it strange? No, uh, Judah and Simeon were two of Joseph's brothers. So timeline-wise, it's important to realize that Judah and Simeon are like super dead right now. Um, The time of the story of Joseph, so you guys remember the story of Joseph and his 12 brothers, they sold him into slavery, he ends up in Egypt. That happened in around 1683 BC. Um, Judah... One of Joseph's brothers died in 1603 BC, and Israel didn't begin invading Canaan until 300 years later. So it's talking about Judah and Simeon. How can that be if they've been dead for like 300 years? Well, here's what you have to realize. Um, This is actually tribes. So when it says Judah said to his brother Simeon, it's talking about the families. Um, There used to be a guy named Judah about 300 years ago, and then he had kids, and they had kids, and they called his family the tribe of Judah. And then same thing with Simeon. There was a guy named Simeon. He had a lot of kids. Those kids ended up being people who wandered in the desert with Moses. It's the family of Simeon, the tribe of Simeon. So anytime you see the name of like Benjamin or Joseph or Judah or Simeon, don't think the actual people think the tribe tribe of Judah. So the the head, the the leaders of the tribe got together with the tribe of Simeon, and they said, hey, let's go and fight these Canaanite guys. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay, cool. So we're on the same page. So the context is they've been wandering in the desert for years, and they finally made it to the promised land, and this is where God has been leading them. But the land is full of these guys called the Canaanites, which are violent and sinful people. They worship false gods. They sacrifice their children. God says, Israel, You need to drive these guys out. Now, these are not trained warriors, the tribes of Judah and Simeon. They're they're desert people. They're they're wanderers. So they ask God. They say, God, who should do it? Who should be the first to go up against the Canaanites to fight against them? And it's almost like they're reluctant. Like, they're like, you know, it's not my job. It's not my responsibility. They're looking for someone to do it for them. Have you ever done that with your parents? Like, they start coming around with chores, and you're like, well, who do you want to do it? I don't want to do it. Make my little brother do it. Um, Instead of volunteering to do something, you ask, well, whose responsibility is this really? And you'll notice that they actually ask God what God thinks. They ask the Lord and say, who should be the first to go up? It's good that they end up asking the Lord because this is one of the rare times in the book of Judges where anyone asks God opinion. And we live in a world where people ever, hardly ever ask what God thinks. Or if they do, they ask him in a way where they want his advice, but there's no strings attached. We do this all the time. We say, God, you help me with my problem, but that doesn't mean I'm actually going to do what you say. In junior high, I wanted a girlfriend so stinking bad. So I asked God about it, and through the scriptures and through people in my life and through that still small voice, God responded to me, and he's like, you don't need a girlfriend right now, dude. You're in junior high. For you to date, that would be the dumbest thing in the world. And I remember my youth pastor, Evan Wickham, taught a message about Adam and Eve, and it was this message about how Adam was like wandering in the wilderness, like looking for a wife, and he's checking out the hippos and the giraffes and the monkeys, and he's like, oh, I'm not compatible. These can't be my wife. And he's looking, and he's stressing out, and Evan was like, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, when you're a junior high kid, and you're looking for a girl, and it's like, oh, they're all wrong for you. They're like, you know, monkeys and hippos, and I don't know. (laughs) It's kind of not nice to girls, but he was basically saying, you're looking for somebody, but here's what happened. God put Adam to sleep, 
And when Adam rested, that's when God made Eve for him. So God was like, Aaron, just rest. I've got it under control. There's this awesome woman in your life that you're going to meet one day, but it's not going to be here in junior high. My response was, thanks for the advice, God, but I still really want a girlfriend. And thankfully, God cursed me with the curse of chubbiness and this like Jewish afro. It didn't always start that way. Uh, look how cute I used to be. Look how cute I used to be. And then fast forward to eighth grade, oh my gosh, what happened there? I'm so pale. Oh my gosh. And that pose, like the hand on the knee. And then fast forward to, uh, I think this is my sophomore year of high school. I don't know what is going on there. I'm really unhappy in this picture because my mom made me tuck in my shirt, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know what was going on. So I had no problem getting girls to avoid me, um, but basically God ruined all my plans, and it ended up being a really good thing because next up in my life came this amazing, wonderful person named Brooklyn, and I don't understand how someone who looks as amazing as that ended up with a guy who looked like Chewbacca, um, but God worked it out. So... That's why every night I just pray for you guys, and I just say, Lord, crush their dreams. Just crush their dreams. I'm just kidding. I don't really pray that, but I totally should. Um, so um, the first point I want to give you guys today is follow the Lord together, and that's really the main point I'm getting from these verses. You see, they ask whose responsibility is it. The responsibility is given to the tribe of Judah, but then the tribe of Simeon says, we're going to help our brothers. We're going to rise up, and we're going to support these guys, and it's kind of like Walter Payton, who was an American football running back who played for the Chicago Bears said, very simple but very true, we are stronger together than we are alone, and this is very true when it concerns the church. We are stronger together than we are alone. No one is called to be a Lone Ranger Christian. You are all called to follow Jesus together. But a lot of times we don't. You know, a big problem I had in high school was that a lot of my friendships were surface deep. We joked about a lot of things. That was the main thing that tied our friendships together. It was jokes. It was laughs. It was good times. But I wouldn't say that we tried to follow Christ together. And I've talked with many of you, and I've heard that similar same thing. It's hard sometimes to follow Christ with a friend. And I think the challenge is we feel awkward talking about Christ, which is funny because we live in a generation where we're so uninhibited about presenting our life to one another. Think about it. There has never been a generation that presented more of itself to one another through this amazing thing we have called social media. We're constantly snapping pictures of our faces, pictures of one another, taking stupid pictures of our friends' faces and turning them into memes. Um, for those of you guys who've done that to me, thanks a lot, you jerks. Um, I've, I've even seen people do this new thing, which is live videos on Instagram, which to me is like one of the most terrifying, embarrassing things I can think of, um, to be live in front of a bunch of people. Like, I hate even getting up on stage every week. It's terrifying. Uh, to be on a live video, just minding my own business and watching people just wa watching, people just watching me, it, it sounds scary. And it's hilarious because um, a lot of times, like, <laughs> Some of the students in my group or students that I know from other schools and stuff, they'll start a live video. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to click on that and see what's going on. So I always click on it, and it's like there's like three people watching and then me. And the kid is usually doing something sketchy or like swearing or just being a punk. And then one of their friends is like, hey, who's this Aaron Salvato guy? And they're like, huh? 
oh, that's my pastor. And then they get like really quiet. And I'm just like, in the comments, I'm like, hey, bud, how you doing? <laughs> I love it. Uh, and, you know, one time I saw a video of a, a high school student, an Instagram live video of them sitting on the floor doing Ikea furniture, building Ikea furniture. And I was like, what is this? Like, I built Ikea furniture last night. I built a shelf for my wife. It's so boring. It's just like, why would you live stream this? It makes no sense. And it's funny that we're not embarrassed to have videos of ourselves online live streaming of us just doing normal things, but we are embarrassed to talk about Jesus. Uh, you know, a lot of times we overshare everything that's going on in our life, uh, but for some reason, when it comes to sharing about the Lord, we don't really feel comfortable doing it. For some reason, we don't want to bring up God to others, and really our friendships should be ones where we're constantly bringing up the Lord to one another. Friendships where we're constantly asking one another for help. Hey, can you encourage me? Can you keep me accountable? Can you help me get my eyes back on Jesus? There's this amazing pastor. Uh, his name's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He kind of looks like Dwight Schrute if he decided to be a pastor. Um, he was a German pastor who fought against Hitler and even plotted to assassinate him. So like pretty much the most hardcore pastor ever. Um, and he says this. A Christian fellowship lives or dies by the intercession of its members for one another. What this means is a Christian community like ours lives or dies on how much we pray for one another, how much we lift one another up in prayer. Do you pray for the people in this group? Does anyone here know your struggles? Does anyone here know what you're dealing with? And I mean not someone who knows because they're doing it with you. I mean a friend who will keep you accountable and they know what you're doing is wrong, but they love you anyway and they don't judge you, but they try to help you follow Jesus. Do you have people like that in your life? If you don't, you are walking a dangerous road. I encourage you, be like the tribe of Judah. Not be, do not be afraid to ask your friends for help. In our culture, we're so obsessed with authenticity. We worship the God of authenticity, but we miss out on vulnerability. We worship authenticity. I've just, I've got to be my best self and I've got, everyone's got to see the real me, but then we actually hide the real us. To us, being authentic and being about the real us is about being the best possible, most attractive version of ourselves, which really isn't authentic at all. We miss out on vulnerability. We want to present the most polished just version of ourselves, but we don't want to open ourselves up to showing others our weakness. We are afraid of being honest with one another, and we think we might damage the relationship if we challenge one another. Have you ever felt that way? You see your friend struggling and you want to tell them, hey, what you're doing is not right. And I'm telling you that not because I'm judging you, but because I love you and I want to see you follow Jesus. Bonhoeffer says this, nothing can be more cruel than the, the leniency which abandons others to their sin. What he's saying is nothing can be more cruel than if you just let your friend sin and you don't say anything. You're actually allowing the person that you call your friend to head down a path of destruction. Then he says nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. He says nothing can be more compassionate than you looking at your friend and saying, hey, I love you, and because I love you, I gotta tell you, man, you gotta straighten up because the Lord loves you and you're so much better than this and he has such a better plan for your life. When was the last time you challenged a friend like that? When was the last time you allowed a friend to challenge you like that? Just as the tribes of Judah and Simeon followed together, so we should as well. Let's pick it up back in verse five and we're gonna move on to another point that we see in this text. Verse five. 
And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adonai Bezek fled and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. So, what the heck is going on here? Um, this seems extremely harsh. Like, we just heard about a guy getting his thumbs and big toes. The Bible makes sure we know it's his big toes getting chopped off. This is the tribe of Simeon, the tribe of Judah. They're going around and they're fighting evil kings. They're fighting evil citizens like God told them to do, driving the Canaanites out of their land. And they catch this king. There's this evil king named Adonai Bezek. So Judah and Simeon, the tribes, need to fight him. But once they defeat him, their plan is not, all right, let's just kill him. Let's just drive him out of the country and exile him. Their plan is to chop off his fingers and toes. I want to know how that conversation went. Like, all right, we've caught this guy, so what should we do? Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe we could chop off his fingers and toes. That's a great idea, Jim. I'll get the butter knife. Like, what is going on? Uh, Getting your fingers and toes chopped off with a butter knife sounds like the worst thing ever. And we can look at this and we can say, man, this is cruel. And don't be so detached from the Bible that you're just like, this happened a million years ago. Like, imagine this happened now. Like, imagine that Bobby, like, found some kid talking out of turn, you know, just messing around. He grabbed a knife and chopped up their fingers and toes. Why would you do that? That, Bobby. I don't know. He's a hardcore counselor. Watch out. He's, he's looking at all you right now. So this is cruel, though. This is absolutely is cruel. The Geneva Convention would have some serious issues with this. This is like Jack Bauer level stuff right here. And, and this evil king, Adonai Bezek, he's had his fingers and toes decapitated. He doesn't protest. Do you notice that? He doesn't say like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought you Israelites served a just God. How could you do this to me? He actually speaks quite profoundly. This is interesting. He says, yeah, I deserve this. Imagine that. He gets his fingers, like if I got my fingers and toes cut off, I would be like screaming some gnarly stuff. Like I'd be super bummed. This guy is just like, yeah. This makes sense. I definitely deserve this. Because this is exactly what he used to do to other people. He's saying, I used to defeat these other kings, and I would chop off their fingers and toes, and then I would make them sit on the floor of my palace while I ate dinner, and they would beg for table table scraps like dogs. Can you imagine that? Holy shnikes. Imagine a ruler today doing that. Imagine Donald Trump goes to war, he captures the presidents and kings of other countries, and then chops off their fingers and toes and makes them flop around on the floor of the why? Like, this is like disturbing stuff right here. It's disturbing. So if you're, if you're like me, and you're a big fan of the New Testament and Jesus' command to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute, this passage can be a little bit upsetting because who is doing the chopping of the fingers? 
Who is it? It's Israel, which makes them what? The pre-Christians, God's people. So these are the prototypes to Christianity chopping off fingers and toes. It's God's people, God's chosen people. They're not loving their enemies. They're not praying for them. They're chopping off their fingers and toes. Now, here's the question. If this is in the Bible and if this is done with, by God's people, why are Christians not allowed to chop off fingers and toes of their enemies? That's in the Bible. Like, why can't we? Have you ever thought about that? Like, do you ever read anything in the Old Testament? You're like, this seems a little bit different. There's a big criticism of people where they say that the God of the Old Testament is actually a completely different God than the New Testament. I don't think that's true. Because God is the same and he never changes. But if that's true, if God's the same and never changes, then why can't we just copy what we see in the book of Judges? So you're at school and a girl starts gossiping about you. So you reach into your desk drawer and you pull out some scissors and you chop off her fingers and toes. And she's like, what the heck? Or she'd probably say something stronger, but we're in church, so we won't go there. She, but she screams, what the heck? And you respond with, hey, Judges chapter one. So I can totally chop off your fingers and toes. This is in the Bible. It's cool. Here's the reality of why this is just not true true. Yes, God never changes. Yes, he is the same. But we have to remember that the book of Judges is one small piece of the puzzle to God's giant plan. God has always had a plan to rescue and save humanity from their sin. However, at different stages of the Bible, he had different phases of his plan he was in. Does that make sense? You can have a master plan, but you can be in different phases of the plan. Here, I just I feel like some of you guys are falling asleep, so I will give you guys an illustration. Okay, so let's call this phase one of my plan. I have here a pitcher. I tried to find a bowl. I found a pitcher. I also have eggs, okay? So let's say I had a plan to bake a cake. Well, I'm going to do different things through different phases of my plan. So this is phase one. I'm probably going to do this wrong, but, oh, gross, it's on my finger. Oh, yeah, there you go. Phase one, one egg down. Yeah, there's, oh, so good, so good. Okay, and then, you know, stir it around. Now it's on my pants. Awesome. So, phase one. In the first phase of my plan, I am going to break some eggs. I'm going to beat those eggs together in a dish with flour and sugar. And then I'm going to throw the mixture into a blazing hot oven. That's phase one. There's a lot of intense stuff that happens in phase one. Phase two is me pulling this beautiful cake out of the oven that I totally didn't just buy from Albertsons. So let's see if I can get this thing off. It's beautiful. Phase two. So now I've got a cake. It's start, that's how you make a cake. You throw two eggs in a pitcher, swish it around, and then you got a cake. So now I'm going to enjoy, oh, party foul. Now I'm going to enjoy this cake. Mmm. That's the best cake that $5 can buy. So good. So I'm in phase two. The cake is out of the oven. Now wouldn't it be weird if, like, during phase two, That's not working. I'm too weak. Like, that would be, that's weird, right? Isn't that weird to do that in phase two? Because the cake is done. The cake is done. So, here's the question. Have I, during this cake-making process, have I changed as a person? Am I a different person? No. 
Like, are you like, you used to be an egg beater, now you're a cake eater? No, no. It's, I haven't changed. My plan was always to make this cake, I just needed to make it. I was in a different phase of my plan during phase one and then phase two. I was always the same person, I was just acting differently in different aspects of my plan. So this is a very stupid analogy, obviously, but in the Old Testament, God is breaking some eggs. He is cracking some skulls. He is punishing some sinners. He's beating a lot of people. But the goal is the sweet, sweet gospel cake. That's the goal. And we are allowed to now eat this cake and enjoy it and take part in it without having our eggs cracked open. I hope that makes sense. Different phases of God's plan. So what about God's character, though, during these different phases? Because God never changes. He's a God of justice and a God of love. God judges sin. God loves the sinner. It's this crazy paradox. So how do we see that God is consistent? How does God not change during the different phases of his plan? Well, in the Old Testament, God is a God of justice. That means he punishes sin. God looks at this king, this evil guy, Adonai Bezek, and he's like, you've been chopping off fingers and toes of your enemies. Justice means you get what you deserve. You get your fingers and toes chopped off, dude. That's, that's my justice. However, at the same time, God is a God of mercy. During this time, God looks at Israel and he shows mercy on them. Is it because they're better than anyone else? No. Israel does a lot of the things the Canaanites do. They murder people. They commit adultery. They worship idols. They commit child sacrifice, just like the evil kings and nations around them. And yet God shows them mercy. Why? Is it because they're better than everyone else? No. It's because God is keeping Israel alive, and by showing mercy and not destroying them as they deserve, he is allowing a greater mercy in the future to be shown. Because who comes out of Israel? Jesus. So move from Old Testament phase one to New Testament phase two. Jesus shows up. What is God's character? Has it changed? No. He is a God of justice and a God of love and mercy. How do we see he's a God of justice? Well, the cross. Jesus goes to the cross and he says, my justice, my great justice is even though you don't deserve it, I die on the cross for every single one of you and I take your sin and I take the burden and if you would accept that, you can be saved. That's how he shows his justice and it's how he shows his love and mercy. The cross is the most beautiful demonstration of hardcore justice and hardcore mercy. God taking the punishment for something that we did, something that he didn't deserve, he says, that's justice, that's amazing. God hasn't changed. It's not that he got soft. It's not that, you know, uh, Jesus was like, hey, dad, chill out, you know, sin's no big deal, just let me deal with it. No, God judges sin harshly. In the Old Testament, he does it by punishing sinners, by destroying them. In the New Testament, he judges sin harshly by dying on the cross, the most horrible, horrible death, the worst death imaginable. It's this uncomprehendable love and mercy. He punished himself for what we all did. It's incredible. And so you see, he's the same God, but in the Old Testament, he's in a different phase. In the New Testament, he's in a different phase. And there's going to be a phase three when God is still going to be consistent to his nature of just and mercy. You see, after Jesus comes back in the future, God is going to show his justice to the people who rejected Jesus. He's going to say, hey, I I gave you a chance. I died on the cross so that you could be free, but you rejected my gift. And so my justice says, because you rejected my offer of grace and mercy, now you get what you deserve, which is hell. And I didn't want you to get it. Eternity without God. He's a just God. Justice seems harsh, but I see God as always fair. Anytime someone in the Old Testament dies a punishment for their sins, 
I acknowledge, yeah, they got what they deserve, but I also acknowledge they got what I deserve. I deserve death just as much as that evil king who got his fingers and toes chopped off. But thanks to the totally undeserved love and mercy of Jesus, I don't have to. You don't have to because he did. That's the cake that he was making the entire Old Testament. The sweet taste of freedom for anyone who would accept it. It doesn't look good now because there's an egg in the middle of it. But in the original analogy, it's this great tasting cake. He will continue to be a God of grace and mercy because for those of us who accepted his grace and mercy, we will be enjoying that grace and mercy for all of eternity. Going back to getting what we deserve, think of this. So now we're in phase two, right? The cake's been made. It would be very strange for God to command Christians to go around and chop off the toes and fingers of their enemies. Why? Because Jesus has shown up and he's provided a way for people out, He's provided a way for us to escape death. Christians, we're different than Israel. We're different than Old Testament Israel. Their mission was to go and purify this land. Now the land's been had. Jesus has been born. So what's the Christian mission? It's not to go around and kill our enemies. It's to love our enemies and spread God's truth. So now that we're in phase two, it would be very, very strange for us to go around chopping off fingers and toes. But during the Old Testament phase one, the cake is still being made, and so a lot of eggs are going to get broken. So they drive the wicked people out to the country, and they use that to set up shop for God's plan to save the world, because Israel needs an oven to bake a cake in, right? That's the promised land. That's the, that's the oven where the, I hope, I'm really going on long with this cake analogy, but here's the reality. Even in phase two, okay, Jesus is here. It's done. Even in phase two, here's the reality. If we choose to allow sin to rule our lives, we can still at times get what we deserve. For instance, alcohol abuse, you can die drunk driving. Giving yourself over to drugs, you can overdose. One of my favorite actors, Chris Farley, just this amazing actor, was found just dead in a pile of his own vomit. If you have sex outside of God's standard for sex in marriage, you can catch an STD. You can slack off in school, and you can get bad grades and lose job opportunities. The reality is, even though you sin, you deserve those things. But that's not what God wants for you. You need to know that. Any bad thing that happens to me as a result of my sin, I deserve that. But... That's not what God wants for me. And that's not what God wants for you. He doesn't sit around and think, how can I give them what they deserve? He's not looking at you when you're sinning because you know God is always watching. So anytime we're sinning, God's not looking and saying, oh, you punk, I cannot wait to punish you and give you what you deserve. No, he's shouting, I don't want you to get what you deserve. That's the whole point. That's why I died on the cross so that you don't have to get this punishment. Why are you punishing yourself through these things that you're doing to yourself? So much of the problems that come, isn't, it's not God punishing us, it's us bringing sin and destruction on our own life. Listen, even as a Christian, you can be saved and not go to hell, but you can allow Satan to bring hell into your life. You can have a saved soul, you're going to heaven when you die, but your time here on earth is a living hell. You can bring destruction on yourself. I've seen so many young people basically chop off their own fingers and toes, metaphorically. I've seen so many people, because they gave into sin, keep themselves from what God is calling them to do. If you don't have fingers, what can you do with your hands? Not much. If you don't have toes, where can you go on your feet? Not really anywhere. 
Sin is an example of our fingers and toes being chopped off. If you notice, if you go back a couple verses in the first section, Judah and Simeon follow God, and so the land is delivered into their hand. God says, because you follow me, I deliver this into you, into your hand. But for this evil king, he rejects God, and so he loses his hand. God has opportunities for you, great plans for your life, but sin will only cut you off from those things, which is why you need to ask Jesus daily, repair the damage, make me whole, make me who you want me to be. That's the thing. There's no sin that's too great that he can't forgive you. If you've messed up today, if you've messed up this weekend, if you've seen people in your family mess up, God is just, he's standing at the door waiting to forgive. He's so ready to forgive. He's, he's, he's inviting you to be forgiven today. So that's all I've got to say on that section. We're going to wrap up with one more section. And it's so random. This study is just all over the place. You're getting three completely unrelated points, so take with it what you want. We're going to read in verse 8 really quickly about a battle. We're not really going to talk about that because there's not much to talk about. And then in verse 12, we're going to read a seemingly random story about a girl and her dad. So here we go. Verse 8. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites, who dwelt in the mountains, in the south, and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites, who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba. And they killed Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Deba. The name of Deba was formerly Kirjath Sipha. Then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kirjath Sipha and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. And Athniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter Aksa as wife. Now it happened, when she came to him, that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? Give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. All right, so... (laughs) This story would be really easy just to be like, all right, there was a girl, her dad gave her some land, she was like, dad, give me some water, moving on. It would be so easy to just skip it, but I really want to just explore this and see what we can find out, see what God might say to us. And I was talking to the girls during our reverse Q&A on Wednesday nights. Uh, girls, did you guys enjoy that if you were there and we were having the girls ask the guys questions? I don't know if any of you guys were there. It was terrifying. Um, it was me and Scotty and Eric and Aaron Frizee, and we were, it was basically all the girls were asking the guy counselors questions about relationships. So girls, just so you know, you're terrifying, and you scare us. Um, but we tried to answer your questions, and hopefully we did okay. But I remember during that time, we were talking about how it's tough for girls because there's not very many female role models in the Bible. Well, here is a female character, Axa, 
<laughs> great name. It sounds like a, like a cat coughing up a hairball, AXA. Um, it's definitely not going to be the baby name of the year for 2020. But her story is very random, seemingly. This guy named Caleb, if you guys remember, Caleb was one of the spies who went into the land with Joshua. So he's one of the oldest, last remaining guys of Joshua's generation. A guy named Caleb wants to give his daughter some land. So then he gives her the land, and she asks for some springs of water, and he gives it to her. So we could just be like, sick, back to the battle. But as I was studying this and praying over it, I noticed something very interesting. You see, this girl is given a blessing by her dad. Her dad gives her this plot of land. Now, in our culture, we tend to constantly ask for more. Have you ever seen a video of a kid just throwing a fit because they got the wrong Christmas present? You guys ever seen that? There's this one I found where this kid freaks out because he was supposed to get NBA 2016, and instead he got NBA 2015. Such a brat. Look at this guy. So lame. Come on, dude. See, when I was a kid, when all of my friends got the state of the art video game system, the PlayStation 1, look at those graphics, 3D for the first time. Guess what I got? When all my friends got the PlayStation 1, I got the Super Nintendo with 2D graphics. So good. So lame. So girls, imagine that you're living in the desert and the sun is hot and it's constantly just beating down on you. And your dad says, I want to give you a gift. And you're thinking, please let it be a one-way ticket to France. Just get me out of here. I just want to go to New York. This desert is killing me. And then your, your dad looks at you and he says, hey, I know you're living out in this desert, so your gift is more desert. <laughs> just here's some more land. And he gives you this land. Girls, how many of you have desert land at the top of your birthday list? Anybody? No, I didn't think so. So this girl gets a plot of land out in the desert, but she doesn't complain. She's not like Ariel saying, I want more. She asks for something, and at first glance, it might seem like she's asking for more, more than what her dad gave her, but in reality, what she asks for is extremely wise. She says, Dad, give me some springs of water. Now, why would she need springs? Well, what needs water? Land. So she's saying, Dad, let me have those springs so that I can take care of the land that you've given me. And you see, out there in the desert culture, you needed water to take care of what you had, to feed the animals, to take care of the land. She's not asking for more. She's not asking, Dad, give me something different. She's saying, Father, give me what I need to take care of what you've called me to do, which is such a great example for us. And here's where we relate it to us. I mean, I meet so many young people who are just like, I hate my life. My parents are ruining my life. I can't get a girlfriend. No boys are interested in me. That's from the girl's perspective, um, not from the dude's perspective, hopefully. Um, we're constantly struggling with our lot in life. We're constantly saying, I wish I looked different. I wish I had more money. I wish I had better clothes. I wish life was better. Remember Snow White? It's kind of amazing, really, in Walt Disney's very first animated feature, um, Snow White, um, it almost feels kind of more like an opera than a movie. People are constantly singing, and Snow White and the Prince and the Seven Dwarves enter the film in this very kind of stagey way, and each of them enters singing a song that declares who they are and what they want. Snow White, for instance, sings to her reflection in a wishing well, and the voice echoes back to her. I'm wishing. 
Now, we see this in so many movies and shows. I don't know if you realize, I was listening to a radio program called This American Life, and they talk about all different types of things on that show, and they did this episode called The I Wish Song, and this is a standard thing. Um, This is in lots of movies, and the way it works is this. The very first song that the main character sings, they declare what it is that they want, and it's always more than what they have. For instance, Ariel, she's the king's daughter. The whole kingdom loves her. They all just want to sing songs to her and just bless her. She's got a trove full of treasures, but of course, it's not enough for her. She sings famously. I want more. I want to be where the people are. I want to see, want to see them dancing, walking around on those, what do you call them? Oh, feet. <laughs> I roll indeed, Sebastian. I roll indeed. Then there's Quasimodo um, in the Disney version of The Hunchback in Notre Dame, which for some reason I wasn't allowed to watch when I was a kid. Um, he sings this from the tower as his first song. Safe behind these windows and these parapets of stone, gazing at the people down below me. All my life I watch them as I hide up here alone, hungry for the histories they show me. All my life I memorize their faces, Knowing them as they will never know me All my life I wonder how it feels to pass a day Not above them But part of them And up there living in the sun It's so uplifting. It's so good. And it goes beyond Disney movies. I mean, hopefully you guys have seen The Wizard of Oz. Classic I Wish song. everywhere. There's a guy named Stephen Sondheim who's an amazing playwright, and he wrote this play. It's a musical called Into the Woods. Um, Katie and Lauren Krippner actually started it when they were younger, Um, and it's this fairy tale where they just jam every single fairy tale into one story, and so in the opening number, we get like six different people singing their own little I Wish song in the middle of the one song, Um, and I found a clip of it. I couldn't find the the rights to the actual movie, so I found a clip of one guy singing all the parts, so it's kind of awkward because it's like really awkward how well he sings the girl parts, so I will show this to you really quick. Once upon a time, I wish in a far off kingdom, more than anything, lived a fair maiden, life, a sad young lad, Jewish. and a childless baker. More than life, I wish with his more wife, than anything, more than the moon. I wish King is giving a festival. More than life, I wish, I wish to go to the festival. More than riches. Giants in the sky. <laughs> so, so, 
super creepy. It's a great play, but really creepy to watch this guy do it. But can you see the pattern? This is like in every single movie. Your whole life you've been watching movies about people who are unsatisfied with their life. Have you ever seen a musical where someone's like, everything's great? Like it never happens. It's always people wanting more. And it's no wonder that you're always wanting more. It's built into our DNA, the wanting of more. And God looks at us and he says, I have so much more in store for you, but I want you to work on what I've given you right now. We listen to uh, John Mark Comer's message on relationships, and he talks about the idea of being a gardener. Um, Not in the little sense, but in the sense of God has placed you in the garden of this world, just like he put Adam in the garden in the beginning. And he's put you exactly where you are in your life, and he said, I want you to work here, and I want you to do well here in the school that I placed you in with the looks that you've given, or the looks that I've given you. I struggle with that so much in my life. With the friends that I've given you, with the parents that I've given you, What can you do right here and right now for my kingdom? And what we are asking is we say, God, give me a different situation. God, give me something more. Or are we saying like the girl in this story, Aksa, are we saying, Father, give me water so I can water the garden. Give me water so I can garden the garden that you've planted me in. Give me what I need to make a difference here. One of the hardest things for me as a young person was dealing with the feeling that I would never fall in love. I'd been rejected by every single person I was ever interested in, everyone I had a crush on, so I felt worthless and alone, and I constantly wanted more. And what Jesus said to me was, I don't want that for you right now. You don't need that. That's not what you should be asking for. And I was like, but God, I want it so bad. And he's saying, you should be saying, what can I do with the garden God has planted me in right now? How can I serve him and love him and work? where he's given me life. And for me, honestly, one of the best things that ever happened to me was the choice that I finally made to give up trying so hard to make life exactly how I wanted it and just to ask God, what do you want? God, what do you want? What is your plan for my life? And I remember he would lead me to things. He would lead me to simple things like reading my Bible more, which is just like Christianity 101. Um, But it really works. Spending time with God, it really brings you into a deeper, closer relationship with him. Um, For me, it was really listening. When my youth pastor would teach, I would come with a notepad and a pen, and I would take notes, and then I'd go home, and I'd read those notes, and I'd pray over them and through them. Um, For me, it was also serving. God was like, stop focusing so much on yourself. Serve in children's ministry. Do you guys know, I know that 11 o'clock is just, it's so late. Like, you know, if it it were up to you on a Sunday, you'd sleep in until like three, right? Um, But there is actually a first service where there is a children's ministry that needs helpers constantly. Constantly. I actually, my youth ministry start was helping out in children's ministry, doing puppet shows, um, just helping kids, teaching fourth grade class. Some of you guys have done that, and I think you would agree that serving others really just makes life click. It shows you God has put you here for a reason. Another thing that I did was God told me in your school, how can you be a better example? Because I was so focused on myself. And so I made a decision that I am going to, when I show up to school, even though Calvary Christian School is a Christian school, I am going to share Jesus with people and encourage people and point people to the Lord. And then finally, for me, it was when God led me to youth ministry in junior high when I was 15 years old, going up to a camp, hated junior hires. By the end of the camp, I still didn't like them, and God was like, hey, this is what I want you to do. And over time, I started to fall in love with this idea of serving. And just for, for me, getting my eyes off myself and instead of saying, 
I want this, I want that, because I had so much. I wanted a girlfriend. I wanted to go to film school. I wanted to become an actor. I wanted to be famous on YouTube. I just, I wanted, I wanted, I had all these things that I wanted, and God was like, just, if you just put your eyes on what I want for your life, you'll see that that is what you actually have always wanted. And I can tell you now, as somebody who tries to follow God and tries to listen to him when he tells me to do something, and I try to go where he tells me to go, and when I get an opportunity, and it's a great opportunity, but I pray and God says, turn that opportunity down, I try to. I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, I am so much happier than when I lived life just constantly trying to do exactly what I wanted to do. I am so much happier as a person. God has brought me into a relationship with this amazing, beautiful wife who is just the most amazing person. And and it's like I never would have found her if I didn't just listen to God and get on a plane and go to England when he told me to. I never would have found her if I wouldn't have obeyed. God is constantly telling us, obey. He's constantly saying, I have something so much better than you could ever dream Often God is trying to make a great move into our life, but he can't because we won't let him. There's this great quote, I can't remember who it's by, but it says, if you want God to write your story, you first have to hand over your pen. It's just so simple, but that's what we're called to do. To not, not to become God's slave, not to become someone who just gets pushed around, but someone who's saying, God, I need you, and I can't do this without you, and I know you've put me here for a reason. Help me to do what you've called me to do here, even though things are hard, even though things are difficult, even though family life isn't always great, even though you look in the mirror and you're like, I really don't see how anyone could ever love me. Maybe it's hard because you struggle with anxiety or depression or addiction. Maybe you are just wrapped up in sin right now and you, you're like, oh my gosh, I hear these messages and I'm just like, that sounds great, Aaron. I wish I could follow God, but my sin, just, I just can't give it up. I just, it's, it's like this trap I'm in. Listen, it starts with the heart. God doesn't demand perfection. He just wants a heart that's willing to follow him. Will you give him that heart today? Will you say to him, Lord, Give me water to water where you've planted me. That's his heart for you guys. Not to want something more, but to want what he has for you because that is so much more than anything you could dream up. Lord, we love you. God, we just want to ask today that you would help us, Lord, to be like the people in this story. Lord, help us to follow you together. It's so hard sometimes, Lord. We're so just outward. We show everyone a lot about our life, but it's always the things that we want them to see. And then we hide things. And we don't want people to see our weaknesses and our struggles. I pray for these students here. God, if there's anyone here that wants a friend like that, where they can be open and honest, where they can be transparent and, and just be open about their struggles and not have a friend who will do those things with them, those, those wicked things, but to have a friend who will love them enough to encourage them to walk away from sin and walk towards Christ. If there's anyone here who wants a friend like that, God, I pray that you would answer their prayers. As they pray right now, God, I pray that you would bring them to people in their life who can encourage them, people who will speak truth into them. And God, if there's anyone here struggling with wanting more, just constantly singing that I wish song over and over again in their hearts, God, change the tune of their heart to say, Lord, I want what you wish. I want your dreams for me. Fill me, Lord, with 
your life and your love and your plan, your great plan that's been going on since the beginning of time. God, our lives are not about our story. It's about your glory. It's about how can we become a part of the great grand story that you are telling. We love you, Jesus. We thank you that you're the same God today and yesterday and forever, a God of justice and a God of mercy. Thank you that you spared us from what we deserve. Help us to commit ourselves to showing others that love and grace. We love you, Lord, in your name, amen. Amen.